you need to be persistent, I would say, and you really need to believe in what you're doing, right? You need to, you need to be 100, 150% you know, convinced that you see an opportunity and you are, you know, well positioned, you're the right person to do it. And, you know, when you have like the, the conviction, then it's easy to be persistent. I think if you have any doubts yourself, you know, that's, that's a different situation, then, you know, you should perhaps think about it and, you know, maybe not spend the time on this or that. Making sure yourself that, you know, you, you see the opportunity, you have the right people, it is the right time, and, and then, you know, you, you have to be persistent. But then it's easier, as I said, to stick with it. Ingrid Teigland Akai is a medical doctor and founder of Hadeen Ventures, a European life science VC fund manager that invests in medical products that address unmet medical needs. In this episode, we'll learn more about Ingrid's journey from the medical field to finance, what makes a great VC investment in healthcare, and how founders can succeed in a heavily regulated and capital-intensive industry. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by Ingrid. And Ingrid, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Before diving into investing, etc., can you quickly talk about your upbringing and how you ended up in the doctor field? Um, yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, I grew up like yourself in north of Norway, in a small town called Buda, which is a very pretty little uh, place. Well, especially the surroundings are very nice, I would say. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in those ridings. I, uh, I had horses growing up, so I spent a lot of time um, riding around in the hills and enjoying the, enjoying the nature. Uh, and uh, yeah, I uh, went into the medical profession, um, come from a family with um, people in that space. So my mother was a, a GP in Buda, and my father was a vet. Um, and at some point, uh, I decided to pursue that track. Um, so I studied medicine uh, actually in Germany, in, uh, in Hanover, Hanover Medical School. Uh, and after studying there, finishing uh, uh, my degree, I moved back to, to Norway 
and uh, started working in hospitals here. So I, uh, I worked mostly uh, within internal medicine and within surgery. And uh, then I moved to the UK, moved to, uh, to London, and, and I continued working um, in the medical field. So I also worked there in, in hospitals, um, then within with surgery, gastrointestinal surgery. In a different scenario or in a different life, could you have envisioned yourself going in the, in the vet space, focusing on animals? Or was it clear from day one that it's people I want to fix, not animals? No, that wasn't clear. I loved animals. You know, as you can imagine, growing up with uh, with my horses, and we have all kinds of other animals. Um, so I got a lot of exposure to animals with my my father being vet. Um, so I actually was planning to uh, to become a vet. Um, however, I I turned really allergic to animals. Really. So at some point, it was clear that that wasn't a great uh, match when it comes to profession. It, so I had to do this. It, it, if you just add a question to, if you look at animals, right, and if you're trying to become a vet, right, because you have to you have to take care of so many different animals at the same time, right? So being a doctor, what are the parallels and what are the huge differences in terms of how you're trying to help an animal or a person, right? Yeah, I think that the um, animals, you know, you can't talk to them. That's kind of a, a big a big limitation. Um, however, you have to talk a lot to the owners. So it's sort of there are parallels. It's not that it's without human interaction because the, the owners, uh, I would think, need a, quite a lot of support when their animal is, is going through a, a tough time. So it's definitely differences and, and parallels. That's a great point. But if you look at your, your medical career or your academic career, is it also fair to say that given that you said that you studied abroad and you went to London, is it fair to say that, that you had that explorer gene has actually helped you a lot? And now you're doing investing, of course, but how important would you say it has been to go abroad a lot and not be afraid to get that international exposure? I think that's, that's really important. You know, Norway is a small country, so we need to have that willingness to interact with, uh, with people and, and countries uh, outside. And, you know, growing up, we, we spent a lot of time abroad. Every holiday we spent abroad. My parents studied abroad as well. So it was, uh, it was something that was quite natural to, uh, you know, not see big limitations in the border. But if you then, so you, you finished uh, your degrees and you started working. So can you take us back to the moment where you thought about becoming an investor? Is it a thought that gradually comes or do you have like do you have a finance interest from an early age and then you see a huge opportunity can you just take us back to that moment where you started dabbling about this idea of going outside and maybe help in another way as an investor yeah yeah so you know I've, I've always had this interest for for the business side you know and I can't really define one point when I said oh wow this looks interesting I want to spend time on it it was sort of a continuous um, specter from, you know, growing up, um, looked for business opportunities. At some point, you know, me and my friend would, you know, gather some flowers in the garden and try to sell them to the neighbors. Um, until sort of when I was studying and, and, and working as a medical doctor, um, I had interest for investing. So very small scale, but, you know, doing things that had a low barrier to entry, um, investing in some listed companies, um, also invested a little bit in real estate. 
So things that were sort of um, not particularly focused on the medical sector. Yes, when I invested in listed companies, those companies I looked at as well as others. Um, but but it was quite broad this interest in in investing. Um, and living in London, I got more exposure to the to the finance sector, and also sort of this cross section between medical innovation and investing, which really venture capital is all about. And that was sort of a point where I where I realized that this kind of fitted perfectly with a range of my interests, you know, in, interest in the medical space, uh, interest in innovation, looking at new things, um, finance side um, and investing. So, so um, that was kind of a point where sort of the pieces just were falling into, into, into the places. I mean, it's super interesting because if you look at your field, right, you're very high on purpose, right? You're saving life in like the most extreme sense. But then you have this concept of as a doctor, you're saving one and one person at a time and you can scale your hours. So is it also sort of like this notion of, okay, if I have a breakthrough medicine, I can save millions of people because that can be a breakthrough taking out globally. Does that also come to play when thinking about where can I envision myself having the best impact? Have the most impact, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's exactly how you describe it, you know. It's incredibly rewarding working as a medical doctor, being able to help people. But as you say, it's like helping one person at a time and you only have sort of a limited number of hours in the day. Um, whereas, you know, when you, when you get a new product onto the market, suddenly you can help thousands of people that are suffering. So that's absolutely spot on. So, but but if if you if you think that many people will have will have the same idea, what makes you able to take that transition? Is it is it a combination of being in London and having having exposure, or is it also knowing the right people at the right time? Because working in this field seems very hard. Being a solo act, it seems like you need an incredible team because it's a big system you're trying to have an impact on. So, can you describe the uh, the importance of network? Not necessarily the, the concept of networking, but having the right people that you can build something upon with. Yeah, yeah. And, and those are obviously interconnected, you know, networking for getting to, uh, to know the right people to, um, to work with. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a team sport, right? It's, uh, um, there are so many different skills and capabilities that, that you need and any one person is not going to have them all. So having to get the, the right team is, um, is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, yeah, and just having sort of the, the it's quite broad, right? So you, you need to figure out, you know, what you know and what don't you know and where can you sort of um, fill those gaps. So when I, yeah, if you look at yourself from the outside, where did you sort of lack the experience or the talent and what team did you need to assemble to create this fund essentially, right? Yeah, so uh, if going back to sort of the transition that I made, when I first started exploring more the business side of, of investing, um, I, I started off quite broad. Um, so... When I did my MBA, I also got exposure to sort of other areas of the healthcare sector. Like I worked for a period of time for, for uh, Morgan Stanley, which is an investment bank, healthcare sector. 
And um, for, for Amgen, which is one of the largest um, biotech companies in the world, and, and also in connection with the MBA, I did a project for uh, Warby Pincus, which is a healthcare private equity shop focused on sort of more sort of the, the, the latest stage. And that got sort of um, they gave me a quite you know broad impression of of the different uh, players in the healthcare healthcare space. Um, but it was as, as mentioned you know when I learned more about investing in medical innovation in the venture capital space that I thought that you know now I can combine so many different things and. Um, the first um, place I started working in, in venture capital was for um, a London-based uh, firm called Inventages. And this is a um, global venture capital firm investing, you know, broadly in the life science space, um, globally, really, both in, in uh, developed countries, Europe, um, North America, but also in, uh, in faraway places like China, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, at this team, we had a number of people with all with background on the investor side, you know, um, from medical medical side or or from the science side. And there really you could see how from these different backgrounds, me from the medical side have a good understanding of, of um, you know, how prescribers think about products and how this is being used in clinical practice. And then the people coming from the more sort of hardcore research and science part have a very good understanding of, you know, the basic principles, the mechanism of action and how biological systems work and how, you know, new treatments and new drugs um, are sort of interacting with, uh, with the body. So coming from, you know, from the research side and going into development and how things are being used in practice with clinical medicine that is sort of the space where everything is is coming together and you need people who both have sort of the deep science and people have the the clinical understanding uh, it's super interesting because if you think about it like over the last years we everybody knows who Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca is right and they also know the research departments who are sort of leading this work and they also know how to get it sanctioned or get it away from the market etc so if you look at it from like a educational standpoint it, sh it should be pretty remarkable to see how much people know today about healthcare versus five years ago right because it's a huge system at play with many different pros and cons all the time. And it has such an impact on, on our lives, right? There's uh, such an important uh, factor that we got the vaccines out and to return to normal, which we are now slowly. But, but looking at from like a doctor's point of view, so it has to be frustrating sometimes, you know, Obviously, there's a philosophical question about how to value a life in terms of can you buy in this medicine to use it, right? Because money is limited or capped at some point. And so there's a lot of trade-offs being made from both doctors and, of course, administrations and hospitals, right? But coming from the doctor's lenses, where do you feel like the biggest bottlenecks are in terms of getting the innovation and the products you need at the right time? No, I think uh, it's a good point that you bring up, right? Because medical innovation is making progress and enabling treatment of new conditions. 
But obviously, everything has a price, and there is a limit to what healthcare systems can finance. So it's just uh, it's just reality. So that is something that obviously we, from an investment perspective, perspective, look at at very carefully. You know what is feasible? What can you actually bring onto the market? And of course, from a you know medical background and as a medical doctor you want to treat everything that possibly can be treated but everybody knows and understands the limitations of the system right and that you need to put the resources in where you get most bang for your bucks if you look at some of the examples that people can relate to is it is it most examples related to cancer treatment for example the cost of that that is, uh, that is a typical one because there's so much focus on the research and development on improving cancer treatments. And we go sort of incremental improvements with, you know, which all are very important to bring the space forward. But there is always, uh, you know, this limitation of what can you charge for extending a life, you know, X number of days. So that is, uh, that is, that is a trade-off. And, um, you know, hopefully new technology will enable better progress at, uh, at reasonable cost. That is sort of the, the goal of, uh, of what we're doing, right? Health economic benefits, which means benefits, both for sort of the, the, the financing side of, of the healthcare systems as, as well as the patients. This seems like the perfect bridge to introduce your fund. So given that we have talked about healthcare systems, etc., can you tell us about the fund, the idea, and what problem the fund is trying to solve? Yeah, so um, um, Hayden Ventures is, um, is now a pretty traditional life science VC firm headquartered in Oslo. Um, the background for Hayden Ventures was uh, going back to my days in London, working for a, a global life science VC firm. It sort of stood out that for me, coming from the Nordics, that were great opportunities to set up a firm like this based in the Nordics. And that, was, uh, and that was based on the constellation of, you know, we're having very high quality science in the region, in Norway and the rest of the Nordics. And also we have a booming startup scene for the last, you know, 10, 15 plus years. The startup scene has grown a lot. Um, and at the same time, there are very few specialist life science investors on the ground. And that sort of stood out as an opportunity. So I uh, moved back to Oslo and started working on setting up Hayden Ventures. Um, and I was you know, privileged to have a few of my colleagues from London joining me. So the senior team now that we have, we've known each other for, for many years. And you know, back to what we talked about before, people with complementary backgrounds um, and skills. So you know, I have um, Bill Walter, who's the other managing partner. We have Roger, who's our partner based in Stockholm, running our Stockholm office, and Florian, um, our operating partner. And we built the team, you know, so we're now um, 14 people all together, um, 10 on the investment side and, uh, and four in the, in the back office. And uh, um, basically what we're doing is that we're looking for untapped opportunities in areas of Europe where we see lots of um, lots of upside and few specialist investors like ourselves um, focusing. Um, in particular in the Nordic region where, you know, here in Oslo we have our, our headquarters and also we have our Stockholm office. So we spend a lot of time on the Nordics 
um, but not exclusively. We invest across Europe and a little bit outside of Europe as well. That's a perfect intro. So just a quick reflection, because often when I talk to people, I talk to people who actually have managed to start a fund, right? But there has to be many people who want to start a fund that never start a fund because they're not able to either raise the capital, get the right people on board, etc. If you had to be like, if you have to build an, an alternative world where you're trying to set up this fund, what are the roadblocks that actually has a great potential to stop you from getting so far and setting up this fund? Is it the capital oh, side, the people side, or what's the biggest biggest hurdles you have to get over? It's uh, it's a lot of hurdles. <laughs> it's it's really it's it's really difficult. I mean, there's no um, way around it. So I I really think you need a lot of things falling into place. And I think Hayden Ventures was enabled by the fact that you know it was. Um, right time the right place you know with a with the right set of people so you need to to check a lot of boxes um yeah and you know the you can say sort of the biggest hurdle is is raising funds convincing investors that's kind of like the very obvious one but that is obviously linked to everything else right it's you know do you have the right opportunity set is it the right timing for it and do you have the right people for it but, but is it also fair to say that, that there's more, there's maybe more to bring in terms of your mindset than just looking at the pieces to the puzzle? Because given that there are so many hurdles, you also need to be pretty stubborn in order to bother to jump over so many hurdles. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you need to be stubborn. Um, you need to be persistent, I would say, and you really need to believe in what you're doing, right? You need to, you need to be 100, 100 you know, 50% convinced that you see an opportunity and you are, you know, well positioned, you're the right person to do it. And, you know, when you have like the, the conviction, then it's easy to be persistent. I think if you have any doubts yourself, you know, that's, that's a different situation, then, you know, you should perhaps think about it and, you know, maybe not spend the time on this or that. Um, but I, I think, you know, just, uh, Making sure yourself that you know you you see the opportunity, you have the right people, it is the right time, and and then you know you have to be persistent. But then it's easier, as I said, to stick with it. That's a great point. So just a couple of final topics. Um, have you met people that you think in in the wrong development could end up like Elizabeth Holmes or others because healthcare are you're so scrutinized if you do some mistakes because it's a field where you have to be very careful about the due diligence, right? And it's not always one side, it's the right side, right? So there's very much a nuanced industry as well, right? It is. Um, yeah, and you know, that's why we are specialists. You know, we, we dig really deep in, um, in the due diligence. So for us, it's really important to understand, you know, where are they in development? Because obviously the most of the companies to look at will be at an early stage. But to be very clear on what do they have at this point and what don't they have? Like we need to understand that. I like think one thing is, you know, when you pitch your company, um, there's a focus on the, the end product, where you want to go. Um, but for us, it's really important to understand, you know, at this point in time, where are we exactly and where does the company need to, to go going forward? 
Definitely, but it also it's an important point because you touched upon that uh, women's health are neglected, 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 or we should have more focus on women's health, right? And it's it should be fair to say that we also should have a focus on more female founders. So I don't know how many female founders you see on your pitch decks, but maybe it's not over fifty percent, right? It's definitely not over fifty percent. <laughs> um, we do see some, but not enough. Um, one thing that we are uh, doing is that we are very proactive in terms of trying to find those founders because one thing that we see is that female founders are less aggressive when it comes to chasing investors that male that male founders are so male male founders are very good typically very good at you know knocking on our door and showing us what they have you know getting that dialogue started early which is actually quite useful um you know, we reject obviously many more um, male founders than female founders as well, because you know, in terms of numbers. Um, but but getting that dialogue early is very important, and that's useful for um, for any founder um, to get feedback on. You know, how does an investor see it? What can they do to to get invest investment next time they come and knock on the door? And female founders, uh, we've seen that typically not as aggressive doing that. They're very good at preparing, you know, trying to have everything perfect before they come and knock on the door and sort of miss out on the opportunity on having that uh, early start uh, to, to the conversation. So we try to be um, very proactive and, and find female investors, encourage them to contact us and be, you know, out there and vocal about wanting to see more female founders. But in your mind, is this sort of a problem that is getting solved naturally? Or do you feel like you need to put a bit more forcing powers in order to get as many as you would like and as many as you think will want to start a business because we have to be honest that it's not a luxurious lifestyle being a founder it's super hard and you have to have crazy education dedication around it right so it's a it's a holistic puzzle in, in one aspect right I, I think it's possible, but you're right. I mean you have to uh, be a bit more proactive and uh, you know we are doing what we can and one of the things is that to get more female founders and also female founders funded it's good to have more female investors and that's one of the things we've been very proactive about having a balanced uh, team investment team so that we have uh, more people sitting on my side of the table um, that are women and i think that's that's quite important um, and i think that helps and more and more firms are doing that um, and the other thing is that we also, when we work with our portfolio companies, we are working quite proactively with them, encouraging them to also think about it in, in their recruitment processes so that the guests get the best candidates, whether they are male or female, and not sort of the easiest, you know, obvious male candidates. And when we get better balance in, in the startup companies, you have more women getting experience uh, and also then uh, more likely to at some point start their own companies. If you're just trying to sort of have some final reflections on the conversation, so I guess many people call you for advice, they feel inspired, they want to start a new fund or start a new company. Do you generalize some advice or do you always have to answer them specifically, knowing what the person really is like and what they want in life? Or do you have any principles that you think you're taking advantage of and that you also can bring on to the next generation? Yeah, I, I think uh, going back to what we talked about earlier you know being a founder and whether you're a founder of a new fund or a new company i think the same principle applies that 
you need to yourself be very convinced about the potential of the, of, of the opportunity that you're seeing. Potential of the opportunity, and then you have to be convinced about yourself and your team. Why do you have um, an unfair advantage of leveraging this opportunity? And, and that could be different things, right? It could be that, you know, if it's a startup company, maybe an invent, an invention that's been patented, or, you know, if it's a new business opportunity, you see it before everybody else and thereby have a head start. Um, you know, there are different things for why you, why you uh, in this opportunity can leverage this opportunity better than anybody else. But seeing that opportunity, why, why you and the right timing of it, and when you're like 100% convinced yourself, then you can really just, you know, put all your attention and dedication and, you know, just stick with it, be persistent. How do you think, I mean, that's a perfect ending, but just to add on, how do you think you will solve that confidence piece? Because maybe that's the hardest piece to solve. If you have the knowledge, you also need the confidence to act on that knowledge. You just, I think you need it. If, if you don't, it's going to be very hard. You know? So I think if you're convinced and you see that you're convinced, you have the confidence for it, then, then you can throw yourself into it. Without that confidence, you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult. While sticking with it and convincing others, you know, you need to convince others and whether it's, you know, getting people, the best people to join your team, investors, etc. Um, if you don't believe in it, 100% yourself and have the confidence to believe in it, then it's difficult. That's a perfect ending, Ingrid. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.